Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists, the podcast that tells you everything you need to know about working for yourself. I'm Lily Cantor, a freelance money, health and lifestyle journalist. And I'm Emma Wilkinson, a freelance journalist specialising in health and medicine. For Series 5 of the podcast, we are collaborating with the Freelance Journalism Assembly. They're part of the European Journalism Centre and offer a great set of resources for freelance journalists, including a series of reporting guides. Yes, all their resources, um, and they have lots on their website, are free to access. So head over to journalismassembly.com to sign up and find out more. Yeah, so in this series, we're covering a range of topics that have been top of their agenda, and they're all things that we've been really keen to cover as well. Yeah, so today's is something that's been on our list uh, of episode topics for ages, and that's safety and security and what that means for freelance journalists. Um, but first, let's check in with what's been happening with us. We both did a bit of practicing what we preached this week and asked for more money. Mine was a, a pay rise for a regular client that I had been put off asking about for ages and ages because I knew their budget um, had been very tight as a result of the pandemic. Um, but I made my case very politely and they said yes. Yay! Finally, I've been nagging you to do that for, I know. <laughs> for so long. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's great that you've been able to, to do that. And um, it's really important to get paid your worth. I had a similar situation with an old client that got in touch with me who wanted to commission me some regular work. Um, sort of, we talked about fees. Um, they came back and, and offered me a amount. And actually, because I'm getting paid in dollars and the exchange rate is so awful at the moment, I went back and asked for slightly more um and they've agreed to it so it's always worth asking I think yeah and I think both those examples show that it's about having a reason um you know in your case it was the exchange rate so you'd looked into it and you know it hadn't quite made it worth your while and mine was kind of putting the case of how long it had been since I'd had any <laughs> pay rise and uh, kind of valuing my experience so yeah it's just about making making your case so we've got a lot to cover in this episode and um, let's get straight to it. So this week we're talking about safety and security and what that means for freelancers and the things that you might need to consider. Uh, we always start each podcast episode with our top tips. And um, I have to say that for me, working in health journalism, mainly from home, this is not something that is generally an issue or something that I really have to think about. But I did do some training when I was a reporter at the BBC, which really opened my eyes, I think, things that you might have to consider, especially at the time I was a lot younger. And I think you can feel a bit invincible. Um, so my top tip based on that would be not to wing it if you are reporting on something where safety may be an issue and to get yourself some proper training and there are organizations that do this for freelance journalists which we will get into in this episode and um, what would your advice be Lily? Yeah I mean I think mine's more <clears throat> about thinking about it kind of on an everyday level really and, and just some simple things like if you're going to meet sources to interview them telling somebody where you're going and who you're meeting um, and if possible meeting in public spaces obviously it depends on the sensitivity of the story 
um, but never feel pressured to go into situations where you might be compromised um, or you don't really know that person very well. Um, it's just kind of common sense, really, um, and just kind of thinking about it. I know when I started out, I was put in a lot of compromising situations by my editor at the time, um, going to, you know, all sorts of people's houses that I shouldn't have been in. Um, and now I just wouldn't do that. And I think as a freelance, you've got a responsibility to to look after yourself because no one else is going to do that. So it's just kind of thinking about those sort of simple steps you can take um, to sort of safeguard yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll get into this, but you might think that safety and security is all about if you're going into a war zone, but actually... Um, a lot of it is just about the everyday reporting and, you know, considering what extra steps you might need to take. Um, so let's bring in our guest to talk about this in much more detail. Uh, first, we have Sarah Jaziri. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Sarah is the director of Frontline Freelance Register, a representative body for international freelance journalists created for and run by freelancers. Its core mission is to support the physical and mental well-being of international freelance journalists who are exposed to risk in their work, as well as championing safety and good professional practice. And we also have Michael Bird. Hi, Michael. Hello. Nice to, nice to be on. So Michael is a freelance investigative journalist based in Romania who specialises in reporting on drug, slave trade and criminal gangs. So this is an area where his online security is really important, as well as his general security. His work has appeared in The Independent on Sunday, Design Week, The New Statement, EU Observer, Business Insider and many more. So thank you both for coming to speak with us today. And um, we like to start with your top tips as well. So before we get into the detail of safety and security, um, what would be your top tip on this topic? Sarah, Sarah, I'll ask you first. Hi, I mean, I think you guys already mentioned some of the things that we definitely cover much more in detail. When um, Emma, you mentioned Don't Wing It, we talk about preparation and research is key uh, before any assignment, for any project, for any trip do your research, 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 and speak with colleagues that have been to, the, to that region before with a similar story, NGOs that might be on the ground, anyone that you can think of, do your research, uh, and the latest security situation, etc. That's really important. Um, we talk about preparing something called a risk assessment template, which maybe we can talk about more uh, later, um, and I think we can definitely share the resources where you can find these things. But the template really helps you do your research, prepare, and know what kind of things to be looking for um, and questions to be asking. Um, other things uh, when Sobhili was mentioning, um, uh, yeah, like letting people know where you are, uh, et cetera, that's really important, even if you're not going to a war zone, um, which especially if you're going to meet um, contributors, the people that you're interviewing. Um, we talk about having a communication plan and having that uh, communication with either a trusted colleague, if you're uh, not being commissioned or with your editor for sure, um, but making sure that someone knows where you are at all times. Um, and yes, meet in public places if, if possible, um, and just be really aware of any risk of exposure that might uh, you might be faced with before entering into uh, any kind of job. Um, and when we talk about risk, we're not actually just talking about physical. Um, at FFR and other organizations, we talk about digital security risks, um, mental health and trauma risks as well. Um, 
we talk about situations, for example, if you're going into refugee camps or you're covering migration stories and sea crossings, etc., to really think about that as well, because we, we all kind of connect that holistically to safety as well. Another thing, um, which is super, and it's really boring, <laughs> I sound like a salesman, but insurance is super important. Um, I used to work uh, for the Royal Pet Trust before I was at FFR on working on emergency cases and situations where an insurance policy had been in place has uh, solved and, and uh, uh, helped in so many situations, whether it's case management or helping repatriation or helping with injuries. Insurance is super important. It's expensive, especially for freelancers going to war zones, but there are uh, specialists that do work with freelancers and to understand their needs and situations as well. And I can definitely share some of those um, insurance policies later on. I know it sounds really boring and something people really think about as they're going to the airport, but do that part of research before as well. Um, and I'm guilty of that when I travel as well, by the way, but I'm not going to a complex zone, so it's fine. Um, training. Um, if you can get access to training, again, it is expensive. Um, and we'll, I think we'll probably be talking about that a bit later on. Um, it is expensive and access to it can be difficult because the situation of where the training normally takes part, it's normally in the UK or the US, um, but there are now different opportunities available. We can talk about that, but safety training, and it doesn't just cover conflict zones again, it can cover working in environmental stories, um, working, uh, covering protests, civil, pro civil protests, which, you know, happen in the US, happen in London. It's not just going, in, sometimes it's not, it's on your doorstep and it's not just something that happens when you travel. And yeah, so those are kind of my three main tips is research, preparation, get insurance, <laughs> and get trained. Brilliant, that's a really comprehensive list. Michael, the same question to you, kind of do you have like a one sort of top tip um, when thinking about safety and security, particularly for sure. freelancers? I would say it's okay to be afraid. It's okay not to do something if you feel it could be harmful. As a journalist, your safety is first, and so is the safety of your contacts. So never put yourself in peril. A story is not worth your life or someone else's. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really important message. Um, it is, yeah. Yeah, and it's not about weighing up. I think I've, I've heard people sort of refer to that before. It's not about weighing up is the risk worth it? It's actually, you know, if there is a risk, then it's not not worth it. Yes. Um, okay, let's get into some more of the details, Sarah, that you alluded to there. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the Frontline Freelance Register and the work that you do to promote and champion safety for freelance journalists? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, freelance, freelance, the Frontline Freelance Register, or FFR, um, we was founded by a group of freelancers in 2013, along with the Frontline Club, uh, which you might be able to know, uh, which is a journalism hub in London. Um, it was founded because basically um, there was no organisation that was necessarily uh, speaking on behalf of freelancers, uh, or freelancers who didn't have an opportunity to speak on their own behalf. Um, there were other organisations working on safety, um, but FFR was really sort of uh, founded really on safety issues that were, covered, that were affecting freelance journalists. Um, especially vis-a-vis -vis with news organisations and making sure that their rights and responsibilities were being covered by news organisations. Um, it was sort of founded, um, sadly, in the shadow of the deaths of a number of freelancers, especially in Syria. So I'm talking about people like James Foley and Stephen Sotloff. And it was founded by their colleagues, basically. Um, and it was founded to campaign and advocate for better safety standards for freelancers, uh, for better treatment of freelancers by the news media industry, and also to share resources 
uh, amongst freelancers on safety issues and to create a, a community of freelancers as well and peer-to-peer -peer support. Um, so yeah, they had all those um, aims in mind. Um, and so that's what we've been working over. And I've been the first staff that they've had and I joined in 2017. Um, so it was before that run completely voluntarily, uh, but now it's more part of the frontline club in terms of it's a financial sponsor um, and supporter. So we have a home at the frontline club. Um, yeah, and so we've been working a lot on uh, improving standards um, within these organizations and how they treat with freelancers. Um, one of the issues we raised again earlier on uh, in the podcast was about pay and pay for us is super important. We're not a trade union per se, so we're not necessarily looking at um, working conditions and working relations, uh, apart from when it relates to safety, but pay is actually very central to safety. Uh, for us, uh, being freelancers being paid on time, uh, expenses up front and fairly is super crucial for them to be able to keep themselves safe. Um, as Lily mentioned, no one else cares more for your safety than yourselves. And we found that freelancers, especially ones that cover risky stories, like safety is central to their to everything they do, their ethos. Um, and if they're not paid properly, fairly and on time, they can't keep themselves safe. For example, they can't pay for the insurance. <laughs> they can't pay, um, they won't be able to cover, for example, um, you know, a safe, because travel is expensive. So if you can take shortcuts, you can fly at night or you can take land transport because you don't, you're not getting paid enough for a story. Whereas if you are paid properly, you can take the safest option. That money is not, no longer an issue. You can stay in safer hotels. You can pay more experienced fixes. All this, it's not just for freelancers. Of course, they need to be paid so they can live and pay their rent, but also to work safely. It's super important. And this is something that we've been advocating for since day one. Um, so that's what kind of the work that we do. And again, it's a community. So um, we have kind of, um, sort of uh, secret groups where people share information or coming back from assignments or sharing equipment in certain circumstances. But safety equipment is very, again, expensive um, and hard to access for many of our members. Um, so we, we have these kind of resources as well available, internally available. And we do things like press cards as well, which is something you think is very basic, but it's very hard for freelancers to be able to access because maybe they have more than one client and not one client is gonna offer them a press card. Sometimes can't join a union from where they're based because they have to work, they have to be staff with, et cetera. Um, so we've been also like, recently been providing press cards for our, verified press cards for our, for our members. That's a really interesting point about the financial side of it. I'd, I'd never really thought of it like that, but it, it makes complete sense um, when you when you say that about, you know, you need a certain amount of money to, to do things in a safe way. Michael, I just wanted to come on to you, though, um, and first really to talk a bit through about some of the practical steps that you've taken as a journalist in terms of your physical safety. Um, and kind of what sort of considerations you've had to make and in what kind of circumstances? I think, firstly, you need to be around people you can trust. Uh, I mean, certainly when I've gone to foreign countries, uh, I had to be sure that the team that I was with was reliable and dependable. And I think that um, you will need to work with locals wherever you are to help, and you need to bring them in to the process of making the story as much as possible and to give them credit wherever possible and to make them stakeholders in the story so that they feel that they have some agency in what you're doing rather than just a hired hand who kind of can do whatever they like to make $200 a day or something. In general though, journalists have less to fear from say people on the street you're investigating or say drug addicts or pimps or common thieves. 
in general, what they outside of a war zone, what they have most to fear from tend to be state actors, such as rogue police or, or, or particularly malicious governments or rich business people who are hiring goons to threaten and kill them. So, I mean, the threat is not usually physically on the street in the areas that you're walking around. It tends to be from the elite, whether that's the corporate elite or the government elite. Yes, and we're, we're going to kind of move on to talking, um, we are uh, referring to some kind of UNESCO reports talking about uh, increasing um, safety issues uh, with journalists um, in a minute. And Sarah, I think this is probably a good point to talk about um, the FFR was involved in drawing up a set of safety principles that have now been endorsed by over 90 organisations. So we'll link to that, those in the show notes so people can see them in detail. But they're things around principles around um, skills and training that might be needed, protective equipment, planning and preparation for when you're on dangerous assignments. Can you talk us through sort of how these were developed um, and why this is so vital for freelancers to have that um, those principles? Absolutely. Um, again, it was developed in, in the aftermath of what had happened uh, in Syria um, and news organisations sort of came together with other NGOs and civil society and even some governmental bodies about what can be done to keep freelancers safe. Um, so FFR was involved in the drafting of it, of it with a number of core organisations. Um, then they look at uh, responsibilities and obligations of news organisations vis-a-vis freelancers and also what freelancers can do to keep themselves safe. So it has two parts. Um, it was originally drafted in 2015, I believe. Um, so it really was kind of more focused on things like uh, for freelancers covering conflict zones, but actually they're going to be relaunched in a, in a, uh, soon again, because um, over the last year or so, uh, front lines have moved. And um, so it's not just looking at conflict, it's looking at covering uh, civil unrest, environmental stories, health stories, so that might be interesting to you guys as well because of COVID and the pandemic. Um, so it's going to be much more reflective of that. And currently it has 120 signatories, so it's gone up since I think we need to update our website. Um, but it's now 120 signatories. As I said, they are about to be relaunched. And the organisation that kind of is the caretaker of the principles, um, which was formed after the uh, as the principles were being drafted, is the ACOS Alliance. And we'll share those links um, with you. Um, the ACOS Alliance is basically a collaborative platform of um, all the signatories, 120 organisations. Um, and it's, we work with them a lot to push uh, for higher standards for the news organisations. Um, and, and it's a collaborative platform because it's not basically FFR and freelancers seen as just to be kind of complaining and not doing anything about it. We're bringing the news organisations in to find solutions to some of these issues. My recommendation is definitely read the principles and see if any of your clients are one of the signatories. It's, it's, it's not a legal document, but it, it has a lot of sway in terms of if you believe your editors uh, or the organization you're working with is not complying with some of these standards, you can just show it to them and say, you signed it. Um, you've, you know, you've ratified, not ratified it because it's not legal, but you've signed this and this is the standards that you, you publicly say that your new organization is held to. And so far you're not complying with it. And if they still don't do anything, come to us with ACOS Alliance. <laughs> and then we have other ways of uh, persuasive ways of asking them to uh, increase their standards. Um, but it's a great document. It's a great kind of standard document. So freelancers should be aware what what they're entitled to. They're not asking for the world. This isn't standard principles that other staffers uh, get all the time. You know, it's things like make sure your 
freelancers are insured, make sure they have the right equipment, safety equipment, because they do your story. Um, make sure you pay them <laughs> and pay them on time. So really kind of basic things, but you'd be so, so, so surprised how many times, even very well-known news organizations, um, somehow try and skip those standards. Um, so yeah, they're, they're a really important document. And as I said, they're going to be relaunched um, very shortly in the next month or two, I think. Um, and they're going to be much more expanded. As I said, front lines have moved. Um, so we're not just focusing on conflict anymore. Yeah, and it looks as a holistic thing. If they look at other holistic things, then psychosocial support uh, that these organisations um, should provide to their to their freelancers that they work with, um, digital security is super important as well. Um, and it looks at actually much more on uh, including investigative journalists because they've kind of not been included for such a long time. And when we talk about safety, uh, investigative journalists are probably the most exposed day to day in terms of their work uh, to risks, whether as Michael was saying, to state actors or to criminal gangs. Or the digital security issues. So yeah, we've uh, finally are including investigative journalists amongst our when we talk about journalists being exposed to risk. I wonder as well, Michael, if we could bring you in here and as we sort of talk about perhaps more specifically some of the situations that you might have to kind of consider in your sort of normal day-to-day -day work in terms of your your safety. Well, you know, you talk about um you know the the security issues may well come from the elite rather than kind of people on the street but what can you actually do practically to to protect yourself as a freelance journalist well i think you have to look at the examples of where uh, journalists have been uh, harmed or are under threat and i think that um in the past few years we've seen um that uh, either the threat comes from uh, rogue states such as Belarus or authoritarian states such as Russia, Turkey, or say Egypt, um, which is scared that media freedom could lead to public exposure, wrongdoing, and therefore social unrest. So they tend to undertake internal oppression of their own journalists or you know, hijacking them as they go over their airspace in the, in the case of Belarus. In the EU or, and in the UK, I think the main threats to journalists are from rich business people who may or may not have links to organized crime and don't like what the journalists are exposing about them. And the proof of this is, um, uh, and what the, sorry, what the method they deal with this is either they do it through lawyers or they do it through hitmen. And recently uh, in 2018 in Slovakia, uh, the journalist Jan Kuchak was shot dead by a hitman on orders of a businessman whose dealings he was exposing. And then in 2017, in Malta, Daphne Caruana Galizia was also killed by a car bomb in what appears to be a hit uh, job from a businessman she was exposing. So that's one threat. And the other threat they have is the legal route uh, through which they take you to court. And this is something that I don't think any investigative journalist has um, escaped from, and certainly I haven't. Um, and I'm in the case right now of having to deal with this. So they will take you to court, maybe in multiple countries and multiple jurisdictions, and they won't really expect to win in many cases. What they want to do is they want to bankrupt journalists. They want to demoralize journalists. They want to force you to retract an article by simply being a pest 
and using all the money that they have to basically wind you down both mentally and financially. And the interesting thing is that a large number of investigative journalists today are actually spend most of their time sitting at desks, sifting through dull documents for weeks. I mean, this is the case with the Panama Papers from a few years ago and with Football Leaks, which was a story I worked on with European investigative collaborations. And this meant that for weeks we were just sitting with a computer going through boring words for hours. And this kind of appeals to more sort of geeky, tech-savvy journalists. And what happens is we find something, we verify it, we challenge the wrongdoer through a letter or a call, and then suddenly, after this kind of very dull period of time, it gets real. And you get this legal threat, you get an injunction, and you go from this sort of tiresome, mundane, meticulous work suddenly to this state of panic, where you're terrified that people are following you, you start receiving weird emails, you get these horrific kind of attacks on, on, on your professionalism from, from lawyers. And, you know, then it's lots of discussions, whether or not uh, things are correct. You have to go through every single line of everything you wrote to check that it's absolutely correct. And that's what you have to deal with. And this can be extremely exhausting. The problem is, at the end of the day, you just do not know what these business people are capable of. You just don't know uh, uh, what's going to happen. And um, that's the risk that you take. I mean, in those circumstances, what support should you expect as a freelancer for the organisation that you're doing the reporting for? I think that, you know, you with these big projects like the Panama Papers or Football Leaks, they are part of these large um, organizations which work with a number of different media. And I think that within those organizations, uh, they should definitely um, uh, 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 operate as a support network. We were very lucky. I mean, the, the colleagues we work with across different um, countries, uh, we're very good at working together and saying, look, if you need support here, if you need support here, we can help here, we can defend this here. And so I think that sense of solidarity um, is, uh, from my experience, has been very, very present within, within those groups. But I, sometimes maybe that has to be institutionalized a little bit and for people to kind of know, say, from the beginning that um, this might happen to you and this is the support we will give. Sarah's nodding along there. I mean, I, the FFR, one of the things that you do is kind of provide this network so people can kind of share their uh, kind of experience and offer advice and support. How useful is that when you're a freelancer? And it's super useful. You're, you're an individual working um, many times, as Michael was saying, by yourself, whether it's in front of a computer or research. Um, and so having that solidarity with colleagues and having that peer-to-peer support, whether it's sharing information on stories or tips etc or even just providing moral support is super important um, we've been looking at creating kind of a more formalized peer, peer support networks and having trained peers as well because it's, it is a lot it's a burden on each colleague right especially if it's like a mental health situations um, and you know you, you, there's a lot of, kind of common sense advice you can give to colleagues but there's also a lot of things where you think 
a fresh thing that is both professional training or, or understanding about that. So with FFI, we, we do have that colligate um, situation, network situation, and this this form naturally as well. A lot of freelancers are based in different hubs, covering different uh, parts of the world. So you know, Istanbul or Beirut um, or Athens are kind of hubs or, or Bangkok, etc. So there are these kind of natural peer-to-peer support networks that create in person. Um, but with FFR, I guess it's more of an online network. Um, and what Michael was saying about what these organizations or media institutes can do, supporting freelancers that are working on um, you know, these investigative stories where it tracks legal risks, um, digital security risks, and physical risks as well. Um, 100% it has to be institutionalized um, and how they're supporting that freelancer like, to make sure that the legal, the legal, any legal risk that is being covered by the news organization. Um, and Michael was saying some things, and I was like, that's mental health, Men- having, you know, when you get that paranoia, um, and it's, you know, the, the legitimate paranoia, um, but having that kind of um, ability to be able to talk about the mental health stress of doing these stories. Um, and that should be something that we can talk about openly without the freelancer worrying that, well, I'll never be commissioned again because they might think I'm too weak to do this type of story. No, it's super normal to have these reactions um, on the very stressful stories with a lot of risk exposed. So having those conversations with news organizations and being aware that these are normal reactions um, that, you know, that, that will happen covering these stories and having news organizations supporting the freelancer, as well as colleagues. But I think it's very important for news organizations as well um, that are benefiting from these stories to make sure that their freelancers are covered legally, um, that have the right training in digital security, and they have their mental uh, health support should they need it. I think that's a really good point there about the digital security. And Michael, I wonder if we could come to you on this, because obviously you've, you've worked, like you say, on, on sort of collaborative investigations where you're dealing with a lot of data. I mean, what what do you have to do to, to make sure that your data is secure? What steps can you take? Well, I think when you start a major investigative project that may require anonymity um, or maybe the material you have is sensitive, you have to build in an, um, the online security component at the, bin, the beginning uh, before you actually do anything, uh, before you even share any information. And sometimes, sometimes that means you need a communication channel that is secure and you need a place to deposit documents that is secure. Um, in terms of cybersecurity, you need to encrypt all emails and you should erase uh, all non-relevant information. If you're being worried, if you're worried about being hacked, for example, um, one trick is to have a computer that you work on that is always offline. So it's almost like um, uh, uh, it's not connected to the rest of the world. It's like an old analog computer almost, and that that can that can uh, help because there's no way anyone can get inside it. Another thing, if you're worried about being hacked, is to not use any computers, is to use the postal service, because it's actually more secure in some ways, or even in the worst case scenario, dead drops. Sometimes the best defense against technology is not more technology, but actually less technology. Sarah, um, I mean, one of the things that uh, freelance journalists listening to this might be thinking is, you know, where can I get more training on this if I want to know more about digital security or just safety um, in my kind of general work? And how can freelancers go about accessing that training? You know, if you're not with a big news organisation, you might not have easy access. 
Absolutely. Um, so yeah, training is super important, um, and there's, you know, there's a number of training organisations out there, but the prices can be exorbitant, uh, very, very expensive for freelancers. And um, there's different bursaries that are available. The Royal Pet Trust, for example, um, provides bursaries to freelancers um, that cover the majority of the costs. Of course, it's not just about the training costs, but if you're a freelancer that's based outside the UK, for example, is travelling to the UK. So there's um, a lot of training that now that's being done in different areas and different regions. Um, so organisations at the Royal Peck Trust, the ACOS Alliance, I mentioned earlier, also do trainings, which is free for freelancers in different regions. Um, we're just seeing more and more online and, and virtual reality training as well. Um, we also say in-person training is always the best, um, but VR is it, it's, it's, it's getting quite useful, especially over the last year with the pandemic and many people not being able to, to go to physical trainings. Um, so that's available as well. There's an organization called Silk Road Training who are excellent at this. Um, it's a mix between online VR and in-person training as well, um, or in-person online, if that makes sense, live training. Um, so that's available. Um, there's also a lot of kind of resources online if you can't do physical training or um, information online as well. Um, the, the Committee to Pet Journals have excellent safety guides um, uh, again, we'll share all this with you uh, after, the, after the podcast. You can share it with your listeners. Um, but yeah, so it, it, we do appreciate that it is super expensive uh, for freelancers, but there are bursaries available out there um, and there are alternatives to in-person trainings. Um, so just basically look at look out for, if you follow organizations like the Royal Effect Trust or the ACOS Alliance or ourselves, we do share these opportunities when they come up um, and on the websites as well. Um, and also there's other types of, so there's the specific Training, not just like hostile environmental training, which focuses a lot on first aid and uh, risk assessments, but on digital security as well. All those organizations also offer specific digital security trainings as well, um, as to uh, the, the, the physical side as well. Um, and also the DART centers do a lot on uh, resilience and mental health resilience. So do look up the DART center resources um, and they do some workshops here and there as well. There isn't enough out there, but we're uh, definitely promoting it when it does come out. Um, and anyone's free to kind of reach out as well if they're looking for something specific. Yeah, well, we'll put all of those resources um, into our show notes. That's that's really useful. I just kind of want to want to round up really, and and Michael, I just kind of wanted perhaps to look at the the bigger picture slightly more. Um, I mean, UNESCO estimates that on average. Um, every five days, a journalist is killed for bringing information to the public. Um, do you think the world is becoming more unsafe for journalists or, or are we just more aware of it? Um, what's your take on this? I think that never before has so much private information about people, whether the businessmen or politicians, uh, has been available. Uh, this is due to, uh, obviously, the, the, the data revolution in some ways. And also through public uh, records or through leaks. And also, I don't think that journalist organisations and magazines, newspapers, whatever, media organisations have ever been more connected uh, across borders. So this gives uh, journalists ample information to work on this, uh, on this data and also other colleagues to work with from different countries. Uh, therefore, it becomes more powerful as an institution. But this makes the people that it's challenging more nervous. Therefore, they more launch more attacks on journalists. And um, uh, therefore, journalists then uh, suffer because of this, either physically, uh, either financially, or as um, Sarah pointed out, through their mental well-being, which is a very big issue. And I think that um, uh, that's what uh, uh, is going to be the next generation 
of, of, of support is going to come through this. And Sarah mentioned some very good organisations. I mean, I think the, the Rory Peck Trust as well, Media Defence in the UK, um, the uh, uh, European Centre for Press and Media Freedom in Leipzig, Germany, is another uh, organisation who are all helping to kind of tackle with this particular issues. Thanks, Michael. And I think we've, um, you've both uh, listed some really excellent resources and places that our listeners can go and find out more information if they want to know more about this. So we will include those um, in the show notes. Um, let's move on to our listener dilemma of the week. So this is the section of the podcast where we put your questions to our guests, fix a problem you've been having or just give our thoughts on something that you've been pondering. Yes, so this week's question is from Marcus Ratton. Um, It's quite a timely one, really, um, with regard to the summer and students graduating. He asks, I've currently got a couple of months free before I start the second half of my master's and I'm looking to start pitching. Does anyone have any tips for a first timer? I'm not sure what my first steps should be. I'm going to sort of kick off with this one. And I think, I mean, he's done the right thing by um, sort of asking for that advice. Cause I think the first point is um, like with anything is to kind of to do your research and kind of understand the, the field that you're going into. I think a really good starting point um, is journal resources website because they've got loads of pitching examples on there and they've also got pitching guidelines. So you can see, particular publications how they want you to pitch to them um so my first port of call really would be for, for a newbie would be to like go to journal resources and and check out um what they've got on there emma what else might you add yeah so i think one thing is about obviously having a really good idea so once you've kind of got the hang of the, uh, the pitching and what the uh, news organisation, wherever you're pitching to, what kind of thing that they're after, you need to have something that's unique and stands out. Um, so I would start to think about the stories um, in the area where you are, where you live, that you think are not being heard and not being told or voices that are not um, you know, generally covered in the media. Try to do something a bit different from you know, what every, everybody else is doing. Um, just as a way of, you know, when you're starting out, you need a reason for an editor to give you a break and to kind of take you on and give you a chance. So just, you know, think about what unique stories you might have access to and contacts you might have access to. Um, Michael, have you got anything to add to, uh, to help Marcus on his as he starts out? Yeah, I think, I think the idea of uh, using everything that you have uh, from your around you is a very good one but I would add that editors tend to like stories almost to be half written Um, and I think uh, this isn't always good because it means you end up sometimes doing work for nothing but if you're starting out you shouldn't really come with an idea uh, of something you want to do but come with something that you have so for example I have just interviewed this guy who does this and would you be interested in it being a story? So then the editor come back with saying, ah, that's really good. You've given me something. Maybe you could also extend it a bit further by talking to this person or this person. And that way um, uh, you're effectively giving an offering to, a, to an editor, not just an idea. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. You want to go with an actual story, not an abstract concept or a theme that you want to talk about. Sarah, have you got any advice for Marcus on this one? Um, I'm not joyous myself, but something <laughs> that we talk about, um, and hopefully uh, Marcus won't be doing a story at this stage uh, in his career where he's going to be exposed to any risk. But should he be doing a story where he's exposed to risk, something that you should always include in your pitch is how you're going to do that story safely as well. So editors know that they're going to be commissioning you, they, uh, you can be responsible and they can be, they'll be responsible for you as well, and that uh, they're not sort of uh, putting you or exposing you to any dangers as well. Yeah, that's a really, really good, good point and uh, nicely rounds off the episode. Okay, so thank you very much to Sarah and Michael for coming on and sharing their experience on this really important topic. Yes, I've learned so much and all those many, many resources we mentioned um, will be in the show notes. If you want to know more about us, including how to sign up to our newsletter, then head to freelancingforjournalists.com. You can also follow us on Twitter where we're at Freelancing4 or follow us individually. I'm at Lily Cantor. And I'm at Emma Journo. And head over and join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community if you haven't already. And we are also on Instagram. Uh, if you feel like giving us a thumbs up or review on the podcast, if uh, this has been really helpful to you, we'd love to hear your feedback and it helps us spread the word. Our producer for this series is Anthony Coote, so thanks to him for sorting out our edits and also a big thank you to our research assistant, Helen Quinn. Yeah, so we will be back with our final episode of this series. This has gone so quickly um, next week. So goodbye for now. Bye.